Okay, so that sounded like you came up with some good tips at the last one. Is there anything that you'd like to share with the larger group? Or anything about the bliss of blamelessness also? How was it to spend so much time talking about things that work? <laughs> <laughs> it still shocks me about, the, and I know they've, in the, read, the writings it was all about that, but how, uh, this isn't an answer to your question, it's just a comment. That's fine. Um, about the, the negative, you know, the bliss of blamelessness, like blames in there, and it just, it was, it just takes my brain a while to figure out what is it really saying? And um, so I just find that, that really interesting, and it's it, but it makes me think about it differently because I would be thinking about something good using the word blame. Hmm, that's a good point. What should we invent instead? <laughs> yeah. But it does bring that in. There's, I don't know, and Dan is welcome to chime in on any of these. Um, there's a scenario I've, I've heard teachers say where um, as we grow in practice we get to the point where we could stand before any group and feel blameless it's uh, we don't want to get into the perfectionistic you know a high ideal but what would it mean to be able to stand before any group of people and feel blameless um, it's interesting it's a state of mind right because we know everybody there isn't a single person walking this earth who didn't do something at some point <laughs> in their life. That's how it is to be human. But we could reach the point where we feel blameless. So I think one, one aspect of it, too, is um, to think about what it might condition to start paying attention to when you did it right instead of when you are doing it wrong, when there's blame. So when we have this experience of blamelessness, which if you think about it, is actually how we are most of the time. Most of the time, we haven't really hurt anyone. So if our awareness is there, then that awareness serves to condition happiness and contentment. And you know, the entire practice, if you think about it in terms of dependent origination and transcendent dependent origination, it's all based on conditioning. Developing a set of conditions from which quite naturally, without forcing at all, the next thing will, will grow, the next thing will appear. So it's important for us to pay attention to the fact that most of the moments in our lives are blameless moments. The, the importance of the moments when there is blame present is not that there's, you know, uh, Sister Mary Rose told me there was a big black mark on my soul. <laughs> That's actually not very important. You know, what's important <laughs> is that I noticed that I did something that was harmful to myself or others, which then, because of that information, I have the opportunity then to not do that again continuing to move towards blamelessness, towards happiness, towards concentration from which is much easier to achieve when the mind is happy than when it's not happy. 
So it's, it, it's very difficult for us for some reason for us to, you know, to spend a minute thinking about when I was blameless and how that felt. It's much easier for us to sit and think about what a jerk I was when I was at Trader Joe's and this person was writing a check and taking forever. You know? It's really important for us to, to get that sense of how it is in, in the body. How is it in the body you know, when we're at ease with our behavior, with how we are in the world? That's important. Thank you, Chris. Say, I, I really appreciated that uh, that comment because I think for me I have trouble. It's you know on that question it's hard for me to think of times where I felt blameless because I sort of feel like that's just what you're supposed to do. Like that's not right. a thing to notice. It's sort of like that's the you know the default should be that you're not taking what's not offered and mm -hmm. you know not engaging in sexual misconduct and that. So what's to notice? Like that's you know and so the idea that. Um, that that nothing there, you know, is what you actually need to notice as a something mm -hmm. um, is is interesting. My older brother described that um, that sense of that doing what you're supposed to be doing um, is just gets you to zero, <laughs> and, uh -huh. and you know to be actually. Um, all you could ever do was get knocked down from zero because zero <laughs> was the reason, the preset point of of acting the way you're supposed to right. expected to. And yeah. if it's like, well, that doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, when he finally described it, we both looked at each other and said, "Yeah, that's the system here, but we don't have to live with that anymore." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's pervasive. You yeah, yeah. Let go of that, then you can mm -hmm. sometimes get a sense of, of the goodness of what you uh -huh. do. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think, uh, a long time ago I read this uh, somewhere in my reading of, uh, around Buddhism, that um, we have this notion of um, a baby as being born innocent. Never done anything wrong, perfectly innocent, and, and, it's, and then the, the path through life is about somehow preserving this, actually it's about returning to this innocent, because of course the next thing that happens after you're innocent is you get... Corrupted. No, no, listen, <laughs> even before that, even before you could become corrupted from anything that you did, you get original sin. Oh, <laughs> yep, here's your innocent baby, plop, put a bunch of mud on that baby. <laughs> so that's the deal. So, uh, so the difference is, you know, that from the Buddhist perspective, we're just born in ignorance. You know, we're not trying to return to some kind of state that was perfect and not corrupted and wonderful and, you know, the way we're supposed to be. We're just ignorant, you know. Well, that seems a lot, makes a lot more sense to me in terms of how we make our progress through life, you know. Yes, we fail, and we learn when we fail. No. And we, we're, not, we're, we're not failing or, or full of blame all of the time. We actually are capable of learning you know, to be blameless, kind, compassionate individuals. That seems like a way healthier way to look at things to me. What links? Oh, go ahead. Well, 
Well, I don't know, this is probably just ignorant, <laughs> but um, uh, but I hear you saying that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, isn't there some, oh, I don't know, so, okay, I don't know this. I'm new to Buddhism, karma in the culture, our, our uneducated culture is, I thought it was sort of like a big burden. So it's, so it's all back there, everything I ever did is back there and I hear you saying that I could I can perceive myself as blameless really even with all that I know that I did before it's a uh, 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 could you talk to me a little bit about that is there a burden of karma that I can't ever get over well the past is gone it already happened so how it's perceived is up to us in the present, right? What we can do is plant certain seeds in the present moment. I don't think, um, I think Buddhism takes a very realistic view of the past versus the present versus the future. Yeah, the past happened and things um, will come because of that. That's how karma works. You have in this moment something coming forth from the past. Um, That's how it works. And at the same time, there's something coming forth fresh in the present. And that part in the present is what we we can work with. That's the intention that we're setting that will yield experiences both in the present and in the future. This is what makes karma complicated. But for sure, we don't have any choice about the past. And so, you know, what you've done in the past, I don't. I wouldn't choose to see that as a burden. Mm-hmm. At the very least, it'll yield unpleasant experience in the present moment if it was something harmful. And with enough mindfulness, it's it's just an unpleasant moment. What's wrong with that? So we cultivate a strength of awareness, so that we're um, not as affected by the karma of the past. Of course, the ultimate example of this is the story of Angulimala, who was a murderer. Um, Some people are nodding, but in case you don't know the story, it's a nice one. He was a fairly serious murderer and bandit, (laughs) (laughs) and even was attempting to kill the Buddha. Definitely not a good intention. Um, And he really did those things, you know. He um, wore their fingers around his neck. That's what Angulimala (laughs) means. Anguli is a finger, and we Amala is, you know, a necklace. So, um, however, upon seeing the Buddha, he had a conversion moment. The Buddha said said something to him that stopped his mind, and so he instead ordained and began to practice and serve the Buddha, and uh, became an arhant. Was able to not be burdened by his past and actually let go of the, although completely, of the roots of suffering. He was ripe for that. I guess the Buddha saw that. And so the number one lesson is a murderer can become an arahant. <laughs> People usually like that part. The more subtle point comes in the later part of the story where he's already an arahant, but he's still living as a, you know, he's playing out the karma of this body. and. He goes on alms round and he gets, um, people throw sticks and potsherds at him 
and he gets cut on the head uh, because they recognize him as a murderer. And of course, you know, he's an arhant, so I don't think he suffers for that, but he certainly, you know, had this ill effect from that. And so he comes back and the Buddha sees him and says, well, you just have to bear that, bear it, monk. He says, um, the weight of what you've done uh, would have been, you know, would have been sufficient to send you to hell and result in very unpleasant consequences. But because you have attained our hardship, you get cut on the head. You know, that's the result. So the the view of karma is very deep in that, you know, really we're talking about planting a seed, and if you put it in the shade or the sun, water it or don't, etc., you get a full-fledged tree or something that just kind of withers and doesn't produce. And this works for negative karma in the past also. If we condition ourselves, now again, this is something you need to check in your own experience. I'm not telling you the theory of the world that you have to believe in order to walk into this room. But we can actually lessen the impact of negative things that have happened through positive karma in this moment, continuing to make our conditioning better and better, it actually weakens the effects that they have when they come to fruit. You can see for yourself if that's true or not. Would you like to add? I would just like to say that <laughs> I pretty for much some reason we, uh, we have this idea that karma is always negative. You're always hauling around that big <laughs> track right. of shit. What about all the good stuff you, <laughs> you know? did? You can't exactly. get away from that either. You know, you can't get away from that. That's right. You know, the, 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 um, what I mentioned earlier from the, um, the five thoughts for daily recollection, all that I do for good or for ill, of that I am heir. Don't forget the good part. Right? And also, I thought that, you know, when... The, when when Kim first started talking um, earlier about karma and this notion of the seed, and first of all, we have no idea at all, nor can we have any idea of how karma is going to work out in our lives. You know, is it going to? If I do something today that's uh, that's uh, that's harmful, does that mean that tomorrow or later on today it's going to come back and get me? We we don't know that. We have no idea about. That. The, the awareness also, as, as Kim mentioned, that um, it's how I receive the fruits of my karma that I actually can change. So the more I am in, uh, through practice, in this, in this state where I notice the arising and the passing, I don't have to be harmed in the same way you know, by this arising even of bad karma. It's actually it's, karma is actually a, a very complex um, topic to pick up, and it's been so oversimplified in our culture, this notion of, you know, it's basically an eye for an eye notion that we have in our culture, or cultural understanding of karma. It's actually much more subtle than that, and probably deserves several day longs of its own. <laughs> well, also. that's what the Angulimala story yeah. was attempting yeah. to show. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't even just that Angulimala went back into town one day. He went back into town every day <laughs> and got this kind of treatment. So, yeah. Good question. 
question about the, the sort of, you know, purifying benefits of the precepts as you, so I know that, uh, you know, monastics have more precepts than lay people, so I know there's like five, and then there's nine, and then, you know, 220 or something in the, in the Vinaya, and so presumably monastics are having um, even more purifying benefits than lay people do. So I guess the question is sort of like, why are there um, two paths? Like why are the you know like if you can achieve final liberation as a lay person, then why are there monastics? And if you can't, why not teach that everyone should be a monastic? Because that's I mean if you're really you know where the rubber hits the road. Like I just you know I, it's very interesting that there's these benefits associated with the precepts and the blamelessness of it. And so if there's if monastics are getting more benefit in some way, then like why I don't know I basically I guess the question is like why are there two systems or um, instead of one system there is one system it just expresses in a lot of different ways it doesn't directly address your question so I think we should do that also but that's it's useful to know I think Well, I don't know. I can offer, I can offer some thoughts on that. Um, for a given being, the challenge of karma, as Dan said, is that we can't know all, all the stuff going on, and we are a bundle of karma. You know, the body, the mind. It's this thing that's conditioned, and for a given combination of all of that. Um, certain things need to be done for it to disentangle, right? Um, and for a given bundle with certain qualities, what needs to be done to disentangle it varies. And that's why our, each of our paths are unique, and yet similar enough that we can say there's you know, an eightfold path, there are these certain practices that you need to do. But I'm not sure, you know, for a given person, I don't know that being a monastic is automatically a better option. If for your set of stuff, you're going to disentangle it through having relationships, because that's where you really need to work. If you become a monastic, you can't have a relationship with a woman. Um, maybe you need to work out something with your wife. I don't know. Um, you know? So we need to explore for ourselves what's the next, you know, what letting go needs to happen now. And we can't even see our whole path. It's not possible. It hasn't been created yet. But at this moment, you know, what do I need to let go of? We can even bring it into this literal moment. <laughs> but we do need to plan our lives in some way. So in general, what, what would be most beneficial for me? Should I come to ISC? Should I go on long retreats? Should I quit my job and travel the world? Um, you know... Or should I just keep doing what I'm doing? You know, what is it that's going to help me let go of what's queued up to fall away next? <laughs> that's the question of practice, right? Um, and yeah, I think that's I think that's the question of practice. It's very beautiful that there are these multiple options, and I'm myself quite drawn to the monastic. Um, tendencies. I clearly have those somehow in my mind and body stream. Um, but I don't know. I don't know what uh, what's 
for this, th I haven't ordained yet, so <laughs> this <laughs> being is going along um, as it is right now. And I think it's a little more subtle, you know, more subtle than saying one path is definitely better and purer than the other. Monastics might say it differently, I don't know. <laughs> Do you have thoughts on that? Well, I think just that, uh, you know, uh, some of the rules in the Vinaya uh, have arisen simply out of practical situations. Um, there, there are relationships in monastic communities. Um, and in fact, um, in some communities, the practice, the primary practice is not sitting in meditation. You know, it's being in community, in this community. And a lot of the Vinaya is about, well, how do we all get along? And a lot of those, those rules have arisen because of conflicts that have arisen, which the Buddha or some subsequent, um, someone subsequent to the Buddha um, addressed by creating a rule that said, this is the way we deal with toileting. You know, and they're, they're really very practical at that level, many of them. So um, you know, I, I'm very much with, with Kim in the sense that um, we, we have this body of karma, which we have. And um, it may seem some people are drawn to this monastic life. That's, that's what is there for them. Um, and that is a very rigorous life full of 223, I think it is. 227, 227 for men. 311 for women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Gotta watch those women. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and, and also, those extra rules don't guarantee you anything. You know? The rules don't guarantee enlightenment. Yeah, that's important to know, yeah. actually. Mm -hmm. Buddha's very clear that ethics are not sufficient. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're necessary, but not sufficient. Five is a good number to keep track of. <laughs> I remember a story I read in a book once, actually, where um, somebody, a monk was stealing other monks. Um, they don't even own very much, but he was like, you know, I don't know, stealing the pen that they were using for this or that. And um, somebody complained about it. And one of the senior monks um, heard that this junior monk was doing this, and he commented dryly, Sometimes people are so concerned with obeying the 227 precepts that they forget to obey the five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know the other precepts beyond having encountered um, through retreat practice the, the three more. Mm -hmm. The eight. But what it seems to me is that the five are very large. And after that, things get to be minuscule. You know, don't sleep on a high bed, whatever that means. Don't, um, you know, eat, eat afternoon. I mean, they're, they're, they're really much smaller behavioral things. Is that true of the others? I think even within those eight, some of them are pretty large. Um, so there is the, um, um, the precept to um, uh, abstain from entertainments and uh, decorating the body. So those are actually fairly large things which are common to us in the world that we live in. We, we try and dress nicely, we have jewelry, we have a certain kind of car, we like to have a certain kind of furnishings in our house, so that's all there. Um, that's a fairly large thing if you want to think about uh, maybe getting rid of all of that stuff and putting on a robe and sleeping on the floor. Um, so those are pretty big things, and, but they're also very small things too. Um, so there's, some, there's a mix of, e of each. I, my own sense is that 
that actually they probably all could fall into the first five. And maybe an elaboration, uh, a more specific view of what each one of those might mean in particular circumstances. And some of them are helpful. If you're a monastic, being relieved of the necessity of going clothes shopping is a really nice thing, you know? So here, just wear this all the time. Great. You know, I sometimes feel like that. <laughs> I mean, we need to come back at some point to the particular numbers are not important to the aim, you know, the aim of the life that we craft for ourselves. And for monastics, the, the point of that life, or at least I won't say there's only one point, <laughs> maybe there is, it's to be enlightened, but a lot of it is about um, not being able to act on the, desi- the endless stream of desires that flow through our mind. You know, if you check how often you have a thought of desire, it's a lot. <laughs> That's how we live our life. We want this, and so we do this. We want that. And it's not that all desire is incorrect. I think even enlightened people have the desire to go to the bathroom as long as they have a body. That's a good desire to know how, know how to respond to it. But the endless stream of little desires to go and get a cup of tea and do this and that, those are just eliminated in the monastic life. And if that's the kind of training that would be useful for your kind of mind, uh, it can be really, really beneficial. It's also worth pointing out that the Buddha did not um, make the monastic life a completely standalone thing. The monastic path is totally dependent on the lay path. (coughs) Those people can't feed themselves, you know? They can't store food, they can't keep food, they can't cook food, they can't grow food. They're dependent on somebody feeding them every day. Huge, actually. And uh, that was meant to convey a principle also of interconnection that we're not always, that we don't make explicit. It's there, but we don't make it so explicit in our lay lives where we think we're taking care of our own needs. So. I appreciate the clarity of the paths that are offered in making the principles of the path explicit. Because coming into alignment with reality, that's why I said there's only one thing going on. Um, That is the aim, to stop falling out of alignment with how things are. That's what causes suffering. These are great questions, by the way. This is really a rich discussion. Yeah. You know, you, you might even think about uh, of the eight precepts, and specific, specifically the one um, concerning eating after noontime. If you've ever done that, um, you might have had the experience of how freeing that is, actually. You don't have to think about, and quite naturally, after a few days, you don't think about what's for dinner. <laughs> No. And then that turns into you know a realization that well you really actually you probably don't need that because you're not doing very much for one thing, and it frees up practice time. So it's just like it's just like oh it's taking the load off really I don't have to worry about that anymore about eating. Um, of course you can if you want to, but it, it, there's something very liberating about it, and I think the flavor of the vinaya is you know is more in that direction, um, as Kim is saying. I once brought some monks down uh, from Abayagiri, and we stopped at, um, one of them had been a, a surfer, 
uh, actually a competitive surfer. Um, and he had been to Santa Cruz and surfed in a number of contests and stuff. And on the way down, I stopped at um, uh, Davenport Landing. Uh, and, uh, and they were really happy to do that. It was a beautiful sunny day. Uh, and um, uh, so we, we went down to the little beach that's there. And, I, and there were a bunch of surfers there, and there was some kite surfing, and uh, there were some beautiful tide pools. And, um, but nobody went down to the beach. <laughs> so I'm kind of scratching my head. I'm going, I know this guy loves the ocean, and there's these surfers down there. And, and so, so I kept trying to kind of, let's go down here. And you know, I said, well, I said, you know, in the Vinia, we're not allowed to enjoy playing in the water. <laughs> no. So this seemed like really a huge thing, you know, for, for that person. I'm sure it wasn't just an amazingly difficult place for him to practice knowing that he had really loved being in the ocean you know, and how now it was removed from him. And, and that removal is both a difficulty and a liberation. It's both of those. So I, I think the, the kind of daily encounter with the necessity for uh, alignment, as Kim said, for mindfulness. It's what those, those rules provide. They're just like there all the time. When you talk about that, my mind goes to why. Why is, why is there a rule against going down to the ocean? I just, mm -hmm. I'm aware of the time, by the way, when some yeah. folks are packing up. It's okay if you need to leave, but this is a good question. Yeah, so. So, um, that particular rule, I'm not, I'm not certain. At some point, there could have been some particular instance. Probably. Probably. Yeah. So, maybe there was somebody playing in the ocean and they drowned. The, the, often the rules in the vignette are derived from some, some specific incidents that occurred, but I don't know specifically uh, about this rule, uh, what the actual case is. But you can ask that kind of why question around uh, things that we're quite used to doing in our daily life. Um, what happens if I, um, if I form the intention that I think it would be really helpful to me if I didn't have dessert every night? have dessert every night, just as a, as a practice of renunciation. Why? When we can form that kind of question around any activity that we, that we renounce in that way, that we decide. And there are benefits from doing that, obviously. So I think the same kind of benefit um, is derived from that kind of rule. It's not... It, it's, it's not punishing at it's all. It's not punishing. That's not the they've, intent of it. They've made the choice. And right. It's to see, it's to find what might um, bring deeper happiness than sense pleasures of various kinds. This isn't a path for saying, everybody. Are you saying that this is a rule that he made for himself? No, no. No, no, it's no, no, in no, the Vinaya. Yeah. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. But there's also a rule that you can't uh, throw garlic over a wall, I believe. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you have to... Understand that these are very situational. <laughs> People on the other side might not like that. I have the feeling that might have happened. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. To get such a rule. It's all exploration. Yeah. All right.
right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Wise Livelihood is on February 11th. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.